this is Nadine. This is John. And this is Dan. And this is She's Not a Slut Yet. This is a podcast about three friends watching cult movies and drinking together. This week we'll be reviewing Nadine's non-list pick. So my non-list picks. I put down Nadine for some reason for myself to read. <laughs> Who Framed nice. Roger Rabbit, which was released in 1988. Just as a heads up, if you hear a lot of background noise, it's Dan and my dog. Um, he's got a lot of energy today. He had to take medicine, so he's down all day. We can't really take him on crazy long walks. He's been like, got a sick tummy, but uh, he's a husky, so huskies have a shit ton of energy, and he's going wild. All right, so box office stats. This movie, with a $70 million budget, had an opening of an $11 million with a domestic and international combined gross total of $238 million. It won 24 awards and had 22 nominations. When it comes to IMDb, it had 7.7 stars. Really highly rated when it comes to Rotten Tomatoes, it had 97%. Audience score was pretty high, too, at 84%. So it's my turn for interesting movie facts. This movie is the first and only, as of 2021, time cartoons characters from Walt Disney and Warner Brothers have appeared together on screen. With an estimated production budget of about $70 million, this was the most expensive film produced in the 1980s and had the longest on-screen credits for a film. The first test audience was mostly 18 to 19-year-olds who hated it. After almost the entire audience walked out of the screening, Robert Zemeckis, who had Final Cut, said he wasn't changing a thing, which is probably great because um, I love this movie. <laughs> Since the movie was being made by Disney's Touchstone Pictures, Warner Brothers would only allow use of their biggest tune stars, Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck, if they got as much screen time as Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, uh, which is why you have that scene where Daffy and Donald Duck are battling it out with their pianos. Uh, Jessica's Rabbit's speaking voice was performed by Kathleen Turner, and her singing voice was performed by Amy Irving. Only Irving was credited. Kathleen Turner, how could you? Yeah, I noticed that they said uh, her performance, Jessica's performance, and then it said Amy Irving, but that's not the voice of the Jessica Rabbit. That's just her singing voice. Every frame of the movie that featured a mixture of animation and live action had to be printed up as a still photograph. An animator would then draw the particular illustration for that frame on tracing paper set on top of the photo. The outline drawing then had to be hand-colored. Once that was done, the drawing had to be composited back into the original frame using an optical printer. I mean, you can kind of tell sometimes when you look at it, but they, considering it, they did a pretty good job. I mean, it's 1988. It was amazing. Exactly. So Robert Zemeckis keeps the stop-motion model of the and Judge Doom in his office. Disney's Bonkers Bobcat was created because Amblin Entertainment, co-owner of all the characters created for this movie, refused to allow Disney to produce a television series incorporating characters from the film which sucks because I really like the tune control, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they were created just for this film. I could be wrong, but I, I think they were. Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, who briefly appear in the final roll call shot, actually had not been created at the time the movie was set in 1947. The characters were given a small cameo anyway at the insistence of Steven Spielberg. There were over 40 drafts of the script, including drafts that had either Jessica Rabbit or Baby Herman as, as the villain, which... I mean, you, I could see either, honestly. Oh, yeah, for sure. The password Walt sent me to enter the Ink and Paint Club refers to Walt Disney, obviously. This and Daffy Duck's Quackbusters, 1988, were the last appearance by Mel Blanc as he died a year after this film's release. Kathleen Turner was nine months pregnant when she recorded the voice of Jessica Rabbit. And Steven Spielberg's first choice for Eddie Valiant was Harrison Ford, but his price was way too high for the film. Uh, this is the only Touchstone live-action animated hybrid film. Okay. Well, I will go over a general synopsis of the movie for you. The movie starts out with Roger Rabbit and Baby Herman acting on their show together in the Looney Tunes-style antics. The scene is cut when a fridge drops on Roger's head. Instead of seeing stars, Roger sees birds fluttering over his head. Eddie Valiant steps on set as Roger is begging for the director to give him another chance and seems disgusted with the antics. From there, Eddie shows up for his meeting with R.K. Maroon, where Maroon convinces him to take pictures of Jessica Rabbit fooling around outside of, uh, you know, Roger's marriage. At first, Eddie says no, but eventually relents if he gets $100 for the job plus expenses, quite a bit in 1947. Maroon agrees and gives him half, and he tells Eddie he won't get the rest until the job is finished. So Eddie then takes a trolley to the bar 
His girlfriend, Dolores, works at to pay her back half of the money he owes her and to borrow her camera to get the rest. Before he leaves, one of the bar patrons makes fun of him for working for a tune, and Eddie beats him and leaves in a huff, leaving Dolores to reveal that Eddie's brother was killed by a tune. That night, Eddie goes to the nightclub, um, and Roger's wife, Jessica, works at uh, to get the pictures. Eddie gets kicked out when he gets caught snooping on her and Mr. Acme by the gorilla bouncer. Eddie, though, still managed to get the pictures of Jessica playing patty cake through her dressing room window, which is hilarious, uh, in your window. When Eddie shows the picture to Roger in Maroon's office, Roger has a mental breakdown and insists that he and his wife will be extremely happy together right before running through the window. Eddie then goes back home and drinks himself to sleep, only to be awoken next morning by Lieutenant Santino, who tells him Roger Rabbit killed Acme. At the crime scene, Eddie meets Judge Doom, who is under the impression that Eddie knows where Roger is and is in insistent on getting uh, Roger for murder. Judge Doom then states the only way to control tunes is to have them respect the law, and then demonstrates how he, do how he does that by murdering a cartoon shoe in, in uh, this goo dip. Top 10 anime betrayals, that traumatized me when I saw it. That traumatized me, seriously. <laughs> that was a horrible scene, man. <laughs> After his run-in with Judge Doom, Eddie goes home only to find Roger Rabbit hiding out in his place. Roger then begs Eddie for his help to clear his name, and Eddie declines, to which Roger responds by tricking handcuffs into both of their wrists. As the two are arguing, Judge Doom's Toon Patrol crashes into a car outside and breaks into the apartment. Eddie hides Roger in the sink, and pretends to wash the dishes, and conveys the Toon Patrol that Roger isn't there, and they eventually leave. Eddie then takes Roger to the bar Dolores works at to get her help in hiding Roger, and to remove the cuffs. Dolores agrees to hide Roger in a prohibition room, while Eddie goes back to his office to investigate Acme's missing will. Once there, Roger's wife Jessica shows up to convince Eddie to help her and find Roger, and clear his name. Jessica reveals while she was there that Maroon set Eddie up to take those pictures of her in Acme and had forced her to take part or he wouldn't let Roger act again. Jessica said Maroon did it to blackmail Acme, but not why. As Jessica gets closer to Eddie, Dolores walks in and is pissed. Eddie chases her outside to convince her that nothing happened and the case will be over soon. Dolores reveals that he's, al he's not almost finished with the case because she went to the probate office and found out that Acme's will is missing. And if it isn't found by midnight, the company Cloverleaf, which bought the trolleys, will own Toontown as they put in the highest bid for it, not Maroon. As the two are talking... I scrolled too far. Oh no. As the two are talking, they hear music coming from the bar and realize Roger came out of hiding and run in to get him. The Toon Patrol was listening in through the sewer and called Judge Doom to investigate the bar. When the judge arrives at the Toon Patrol, they're able to flush out Roger with a knock. The judge then tries to kill Roger, you know, with the dip, but Eddie convinces the judge and Roger to take a drink of bourbon before he's in dip. Roger takes a drink and then turns to an incredibly loud and, and destructive whistle, giving him and Eddie enough time to escape the bar. Once outside, Eddie and Roger attempt to take the Tomb Patrol car, but they can't find the keys. Roger then realized that Tomb Patrol had had Benny the cab locked in the back and the two-spring Benny and used him to get their getaway car. Benny takes them to a theater to hide out, and Eddie reveals to Roger his brother was killed by a tune. As Dolores comes to collect them, Eddie sees a new reel with Maroon purchasing the trolley cars. Eddie sees that as a connection, and he and Roger go to confront Maroon. Once at Maroon Studios, Eddie convinces Roger to stay in the garage while Eddie um, confronts Maroon. Roger's wife knocks him out right after Eddie leaves, and then follows Eddie to the office without him knowing. While in Maroon's office, Eddie forces Maroon to tell him everything about Cloverleaf. Maroon reveals that Cloverleaf wanted to buy a studio, but only if Acme would sell his property, including Toontown. When Acme wouldn't sell Maroon, they thought he could blackmail him into it, and also reveals that the tunes are in danger if Acme Wills isn't found. Just as Maroon says this, Eddie sees a gun through the curtains and jumps out of the way, and Maroon gets shot. When Eddie looks out the window, he sees Jessica running away. Eddie chases Jessica down into Toontown once she realizes she is once he realizes she is Roger. Eddie follows who he thinks is Jessica into an apartment building and realizes a little too late that it's a crazed older woman, Toon, who proceeds to chase him. Once Eddie gets rid of her, he goes down a dark alley looking for Jessica, Jessica and finds her pointing a gun at him. Or so he thought when he shoots at him and scares away the man behind him. 
When Eddie points his gun at her, Jessica points out the gun is the same one used to kill Maroon and reveals that Judge Doom is the man behind Maroon's death. Eddie and Jessica decide to go after, but neither of them have their car, so Eddie calls for Benny the cab just as the Toon Patrol begin to chase them. They don't get far, however, as Judge Doom dumps Dip all over the road, causing Benny to, well, his tires to melt and crash into a lamppost. Judge Doom then has the Toon Patrol arrest Jessica and Eddie and take them to the Acme factory. Once at the factory, the Toon Patrol figures out that neither Eddie or Jessica Rabbit have Acme's will. At the same moment, Roger finds Benny still on the side of the road, and the two drive off to rescue Jessica and Eddie. As Roger gets shopped off at the factory and Benny gets to the police, the Toon Patrol is drilling their way through to Toontown as Judge Doom tells them he plans to wipe Toontown off the map and build a freeway where Toontown once stood. After Doom's evil plan speech, Roger blasts through the manhole in the factory to rescue Eddie and Jessica, but doesn't make it far before he's tied up with Jessica. As the Toon Patrol fire up the machines that they will kill Roger, Jessica, and Toontown with, Judge Doom falls and accidentally reveals that the Toon Patrol can die from laughter. Eddie then does just that and kills them with laughter and turns the machine off that had begun to shoot dip at Roger and Jessica. Judge Doom comes back at the scene as the Toon Patrol dies and then turns the machine with the dip back on and gets in a fight with Eddie using all the acne props in the factory. Eventually their fight causes Doom to get flattened by a steamroller. As the machine rolls away, Judge Doom gets back up completely flattened and reveals he is not only a Toon, but the Toon that kills Eddie's brother. The Toon begin to fight again, and Judge, and Judge Doom is eventually killed by the spilled dip. After the cops show up, Eddie figures out the will Acme left used disappearing ink on the blank paper that Acme gave to Jessica. The last scene of the movie shows Eddie, Dolores, Jessica, and Roger walking off into Toontown. There you go. It was a very quick movie. Yeah. I, didn't know how I to... have to tell you, um, when I watched this movie, I, well, I was going to say, when I watched this movie the first time, it was a flood of nostalgia. And for me, it wasn't exactly the best nostalgia, but I cannot, I can't help but say this movie is amazing. <laughs> oh, it's truly amazing. And like, when watching this now versus watching it when I was a kid, because for some reason my parents let me watch this movie. That's that's the trauma for mine as well. After they realized halfway through the movie what the movie was about, they were like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, like, I, I had no idea, like, it was literally about a unfaithful cartoon character's wife and the whole plot of murder and this whole, uh, like, no, I guess it was just like... just kind of watch it for the tunes, you know? But then yeah, you see it, all that shit. But, like, the bad guy is all about industrialization, like, making a freeway over, like, all these, like, iconic... Hollywood uh, studios and stuff. So it's it's so many ridiculous concepts in a kid. Well, it's not a kid's cartoon, obviously. But it's, no, it's, it's, it's got. That is a very good point to make. Like this is clearly not a kid's cartoon, but it uses a lot of kids' cartoon stuff in it. Who the fuck were they marketing towards? It was a seventeen and nineteen year old. Well, I think this is like the precursor to all these adult, all the adult comedy. Yeah. Yeah, 17 and 19-year-olds. And in my interesting facts, I said they, they showed this to 17 and 19-year-olds. Their target audience... Yeah, but, like, that's such a was... weird range of people to market it towards. Like, it's got kid undertones, but also, like, mystery murder that usually resonates with people our age. That's the perfect audience to put it towards as teens when some of them are just starting yeah. in, getting into the mystery and murder thing. Some of them are actually really, you know, still watching cartoons and stuff like that. That's the perfect audience to go to. It just happens that that audience hated the movie. It was the kids who loved the movie. Because the kids, it, it's just like all 90s cartoons that we had when we were kids. They had a bunch of shit in it that didn't make any sense. And this movie technically wasn't about an unfaithful wife. It was about uh, a bunch of really rich people manipulating uh, yeah. those that were underneath them. And the aftermath that came out of it, kind of. Because she was never unfaithful to him. Because she no. wanted to be, she was unfaithful because she had to be. She didn't have a choice. Yeah, like, that. that's very much, like, initially that's presented as a plot, but what the actual story is about is just this corruption in this cartoon world that's supposed right. to be so wholesome and so, like, perfect, yet the uh, the main character is an, an alcoholic. Whose brother like, died because of a tune that dropped a safe on him. Yeah. 
so there, there's all these adult themes in something that presents itself as a very animated, colorful picture. And, like, I think this is why you have The Simpsons, The Family Guy, all those adult cartoons you have today is because this movie kind of, like, opened up this world of how you can have, like, a mainstream well, colorful not picture. entirely true, because we had Looney Tunes before that, and Looney Tunes were kind of doing shit like this well before this movie ever came out. Not to the extreme, though. Not to the, not to the hard point that this movie made. You have to, like, watch Looney Tunes again, because... When you watch them, they make a lot of sexual innuendos, innuendos, and it's not as like blatant as this movie is for in certain areas, but it's definitely there. It's pretty high with sexual innuendos. There's no cursing, I'll give them that, but they definitely have a lot of like sexism in there. There's a bit of racism coming up. This wasn't the first time that like adult themes have been laced into cartoons, but I think this opened up like studios to say like, oh. Like, blatantly adult-themed cartoons aren't going to be something that fail. Like, I think that's, I think this really, like, opened Pandora's box when it came to, like, the series you see, like, the nine, the 90s and 2000s of all these very much geared towards adults, uh, like, adolescents. Well, I can tell you, I watched this movie when I was, like, 10 to 13, right? Yeah. When I started going through that animation craze... I eventually stumbled on this movie, and I just watched it. And there's a, just, like, two or three scenes. I know that Nadine listed, actually, two of those scenes out. But there's two or three scenes that are really, really perfect that I remember extremely clear. For example, the Eddie Boop scene, or the Betty Boop scene. Eddie Boop, Jesus. Um, the Betty Boop scene, that really struck out to me, and I don't know why. But more so the shoe, the cartoon shoe dying in a vat of dip was the most traumatizing thing I had ever watched when I was Even that age. Even today I had a hard time yeah. watching it. Oh my god. Like, no, like, I remember like, I, I was watching the scene today and was, I looked at Nadine and I was like, dude, like, I feel like I just watched a puppy die. Yeah, it was like, it's like killing a puppy. Oh, that was just traumatizing. It's so... The reason why I think this movie stands out is because, you know, cartoons are the one thing. And regular movies are another thing. But when it comes to cartoons, you, you laugh, you enjoy watching it. But I wouldn't say you feel connected to the characters in any way. Cause it's freaking cartoons. Maybe, maybe only, like, really young kids do. But watching this, you know, being an adult now, um, like, you're a lot more connected to these animated characters and you're actually like, wow, that's cool. I like that interaction. I like how they uh, added that in there. And then like, because of that, the shoe being dissolved is even more fucking traumatizing. Because look, he was whimpering as he's being shoved into this death vat. He's like, no, please. And then just gets melted. And it doesn't, it doesn't speak. It doesn't actually have any voice. It just whimpers. Like it's making sounds like a dog would do. So it's kind of like saying, oh, this is like a dog. This is not really like a something that's like a a voice to it. So then it's literally like watching someone just being cruel to an animal for no reason other than because yeah, they mean, feel like it. It just, it hurt my soul. Well, not, not to mention right before that, they all ran around like, like a uh, stray dogs trying to get away, you know? Exactly. And then he just grabs them. And I was like, that's messed up. And it's, uh, there's just a lot of animated gold in this movie that, uh, you know, yes. yeah, you it, just, it's just like it's as a kid you watch it and you're like haha that's funny but as an adult you watch it and you're just like holy shit like the the crazy uh the crazy lady um cartoon in the elevator that chased Eddie down like you look like what was what you say you look like my husband and just start fucking chasing him and he's like no you know that type of thing I thought that was just downright hilarious but at the same time I was also like uh that's a little weird. <laughs> Yeah, the other thing is, like, I don't remember, like, this is one of those, like, climaxes of any movie I've ever seen in history that I've been invested in. The whole scene where, like, Roger and Jessica Rabbit are tied up, and you have, Doc, like, uh, Mr. Doom, like, being rolled over by the steamroller, like, that that was one of those intense final scenes of a movie I've ever, I've ever seen, and, like, it still sticks to me, it still has the same impact watching it as an adult, just because, like, the way this movie is done. Well, this movie definitely has a uh, rewatching value for sure. 
if uh, oh. if you're also putting that in there. I loved this movie. I mean, there's characters what? in there that I that are like my favorites, but they're the bad guys. <laughs> like it, the the Toon Patrol, the Weasels. I love them. I would watch a cartoon all day long that was about those five fucking idiots being part of the mob. I just I would. It would be great. <laughs> what? I feel like they, they're never really the true bad guy because they're just kind of the pawns because at the end they all kind of die and they become angels. Well, no, the one ends up getting put in dip. The one that was in the, the pink suit, he falls in dip, but the rest yeah. of them become angels. Yeah, but the one in the pink suit was actually leading the entire But yeah. Yeah, the, the entire group was just comedy, pure comedy. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think they served any other purpose in that movie than for comedic relief. Yeah. No. I, I love the car. Like, the... The car was my favorite character. Oh my god! When it ran over Dip, I legitimately thought the car was oh going to god, die. Oh my god! Yeah, I was so sad. And like, like, and then it's you know, oh, it veered off the side of the road. It's like, oh no, I got a flat tire. I'm like, dude, your legs just melted. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. not just a flat tire; like your <laughs> legs are gone. And this is like what 15 years before Disney's cars. Like, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the trauma of like putting Lightning McQueen in one of those? For children, exactly. I had the same feeling, man. Thank you. And then, but, uh, um, Betty Boop scene is funny. Go ahead, too. I was gonna say, like, Betty Boop scene is funny too because they have Betty Boop, who was considered, um, like a sex icon when she came out. Uh, and she's like the one that's not looked at in this scene, even though she was considered one. Jessica Rabbit comes out and she becomes the new sex icon. I thought that was like an interesting way they played it. Well, I mean, Betty Boop now, probably Betty Boop around the time period, 1988, was she really popular still? Well, not really, but the cool no. thing is it's it's the original <laughs> Betty Boop voice actress that plays the character. Well, she was in black and white still. Yeah, but like, yeah. Yeah. Betty Boop was popular in like the 1930s. This movie came out in 1988, and it was the same yeah. voice actress. That's, I thought that was kind of cool. I also think what's kind of cool um, is that she was the only character, I think, in the entire movie that was a tune that was in black and white. Right? I think she, she never actually yeah. came out of black and white. Um, I mean, we have her every now and then out of black and white, but even then, she's still her coloring is still black and white. Like, they never put any color into her dress or anything like that when they put red lipstick on her. That's all they do is put red lipstick on her. Um, I so, don't think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they do that on purpose. Um, to show like how the times have changed from when the movie's supposed to be placed in to when uh, she had come out originally, which was like only twenty years prior. Oh, oh, that reminds me. Um, since we're speaking about tunes, what about the Tweety Bird going one little piggy and literally lifting his fingers up one by one? I was, I was cracking up because that was a really good, really, really good, uh, really good scene right there. That was so fucked because he knew her. He was like, hey, Tweety. And then she was like, fuck you. I'll let your ass drop. And also, within the same scene, you get uh, Mickey Mouse and uh, Big Bugs Bunny Bunny, debating over how to save this guy's life. Bugs Bunny gives him a spare spare tire, a spare, which isn't a spare parachute, it's a spare tire. So it's it's kind of crazy that these two studios got along for like this one movie and that's it oh yeah i mean this was a really interesting blend of all of the you know the looney tunes and all these characters that a lot of people grew up with and i think that's what they were gearing towards and i think that this was this was legitimately the only way to blend them together is to make them like almost like a movie like this didn't even have to be a mystery movie but almost make it live action um because like they just you know those two companies would almost never work together otherwise back then no no they wouldn't have and they 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 did two entirely different things like disney was all about i mean they had some violence in the disney cartoons but even so like it was mostly about like being a little bit more wholesome and stuff like a magical whereas like looney tunes was straight up like chaos and violence Like Looney Tunes was pure fucking Looney Tunes rolled off the wrong side of the bed that day and chose violence. Like that's all they were about. Beating the shit out of each other for comedy. Okay. There's some Looney Tunes that like you just can't show 
anywhere. Like that are completely. Oh my god! The amount of sexual innuendos in Looney Tunes that goes completely on, you know, unnoticed until recently. Like uh, like with like Tom and Jerry, there was a lot of sexual innuendos that you can pick up on. All but right, you know, Walt it. Disney. I'm Walt sorry. Disney didn't really have that. They had some, but it wasn't as com. Well, Walt Disney was just racist, but that just was. Yeah, the time Disney period. had their problems too, but like, that's the thing. Like, animated cartoons always had these like really fucked up themes. In, in a way, like this kind of like brings them together, but doesn't really like bring all the negative stuff together. Yeah, it it it'll it actually it actually is very for like a 1988 movie. It's pretty like appropriate, like as far as. Like, I don't think there's any one character that's, like, put up for doing something that would be really despised now. No, not at all. Very open to me. Yeah, I feel um, like there's a lot of... At the same character. time, it didn't really go over all of the main issues that are happening nowadays. I don't think there was, like, any gay no. characters and stuff like that. It was just, you know, just general nice shit. Movie, like, though. uh... Yeah, like Jessica getting uh Jessica getting caught in a quote unquote um patty cake. God I fucking that is such a dad joke if I've ever heard one. Um Jessica getting caught doing patty cake with another man outside of her marriage. Like, you know, that I mean it's frowned upon, but I imagine back then that was a lot, lot worse than it is now. I mean it's obviously an Indian window, but like yeah, but that, yeah. That, that Indian window was <laughs> A lot of good I innuendos. Do you like how, uh, like, accurate they were? Or like, the small little things that they would pop in there? Um, in the movie, like, he says, uh, Eddie says, oh, why would I get a car? L.A. has the best public transportation. Like, that is in the world, and that is not the case anymore. But I'm, I'm pretty sure at the time when the film was supposed to be portrayed, that was accurate. <laughs> like, they had the best public transportation. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And I was like, okay, that's cool. That's not something that you would, like, not everyone thinks details that much. And, like, one that I thought was really interesting was when Eddie comes into the bar for the first time and his one friend is, like, passed out drunk because he got let go from his job because they're, like, you know, trying to shut down the trolleys. He said, here's to the pencil pushers. Let's hope they all get lead poisoning. That was actually a reference to the paint on the pencils because people would get lead poisoning from the paint on pencils in the 1940s because it wasn't until 1978 that lead being put in paint became banned but they legitimately used lead in the uh in the pencil itself not not on the outside no they used graphite graphite was being used in the pencil uh since the 1500s okay yeah like (laughs) just the fact that the overarching like issue is industrialization oh yeah this this movie portrayed that industrialization. Yeah. And when was this movie? They did this in, like, what, quote-unquote... Like, I know they made it in 1988, but it was supposed to portray 1944? 47, I year? think. 47. Yeah, I think um, it was supposed correct to Correct me if I'm yeah. wrong. Let's see. Let's see. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the Prohibition had ended in 1933. Was that back room where that, uh, you know, they had that, like, secret back room in the bar? Was that just, like, a leftover of the Prohibition? She says that in the movie that it is. How did you guys both miss it? Oh, really? Yeah, you both missed that? I missed it. No, I I missed it. I thought she just had, like, a sex dungeon or something in the back back of her office. Roger asks her, you know, hey, what's this room? And she goes, oh, it's a Prohibition room. It came, it was there for, during Prohibition to hide all the alcohol. You guys miss it. Can you imagine, like, living back in 1940s or whatever and the Prohibition had ended, and there's just a bunch of obvious, like, everyone at that time period that drank or was going to drink when they were a little bit older all knew about the Prohibition. I just think that's really cool that there's, like, Prohibition rooms, like, leftovers of that. But I think that's just another credit to this film, like, to how time-sensitive it, it was. Well, except for, you know, Eddie's brother dying from a fucking safe. That... I don't think that's time, you know, relative, but still funny nevertheless. Piano was a reference to the cartoons. The safe was Acme. The piano being dropped on his head was his brother. 
and the piano was a reference to tunes and the safe is a reference to tunes, um, which brings it all back to D Judge Doom being a tune. Yeah. Which, speaking of, the ultimate question about this movie, I know you guys... I know you guys have heard this many, many times before. Who was Judge Doom? That was Doc. Yeah. Yeah. That Doc was Doc? Doc from Back to the Future. Yeah. Which actually kind of horrifies me now, thinking of like how many characters he plays that I adored. And he plays Doc. Uh, oh, I'm not Mr. talking Doom. about the voice actor. That's really cool, though. I'm talking about what tune he is. What tune he is? I don't... It, it, I think that is really, really cool in the movie. Because... Oh, it's, it's horrifying, the end. Well, it is horrifying, but it's really cool how they, they threw him out as a tune and made it seem like everyone, not, not, nobody knew what the tune was, but he was a very important tune, of course. But nobody knows what that tune is. It's a great escape way of not making someone hate one of the uh, tunes or Looney Tunes or Disney characters forever because it was in that movie. So it was just this generic tune villain that was quote-unquote super important, but ended up not being important at all. It was just a fictional addition. I just think that's a really cool way to uh, play it out. So the villain, you know, whatever character or animated character they choose is not, you know, hated after this movie. Because you know how kids are. They created characters specifically for this movie, so they could have just created a brand new character that ended up just being hated forever because these characters were never used again in any movie or TV show afterwards. The ones that were specifically created for it because they were considered both owned by both companies and neither company would let the other use it. So if they wanted to, they could have created a villain, but they decided to not and keep the actor in there instead, more than likely because he is so good at what he does. Like, he made it. You know what I mean? He made that whole scene what it was like benny the car right that's a completely new character yeah but i think, so. I think yeah. that that whole concept of like him being a a, a tune and human skin and that whole, oh like, yeah and then reveal, then you see like terrifying. his just his his skin body afterwards. yeah it, that that still scars me from like when i was a kid I, it's honestly one of my top five villains ever I mean, I, I I could see that. I didn't really uh, I didn't really think it was a terrible villain, but that ending scene, as you said before, was really really good. Yep, top but, five villain. <laughs> and uh, I noticed that Nadine, you put the the freeway thing in there. I mean, I nowadays we look at that, and we're like, oh, that's normal. But they didn't have really go ahead. Like, freeways like like they have in L.A. now. Uh, then so they were like, what the fuck is a freeway? <laughs> They had no clue what it was. They were like, that sounds like absolute bullshit, which is hilarious because if you go to today's standards, or even 1988, they're like, they had freeways. Like, it was like, it you was go only a matter five of years further and there was freeways everywhere. Right, exactly. Yep. That's what I was talking about earlier. Like, this movie, like, actually, like, is very time period sensitive that it actually, like, really, it, it actually, like, bring alludes to these issues that would have been in, like, 1940. Right, and I think it's they were not only that, but they were also really, really like specific in their little details they popped in, like the pencil on the freeway, all of that. They had the style put on point. They had the the trolleys even, which was pretty cool. So prohibition was there. They had Betty Boop come in. She was still in black and white, you know. So yep. the the time period that they played this movie, right, was uh. I believe when I think it's around the World War II time, of course. It's nineteen forty-seven. It was after World War Two. Right after World War Two. Yeah. And uh, I'm I love how when you watch movies during that time period or it's supposed to take place in that time period, it's always a really dark undertone, right? And every single person that every single like dude or you know man that is in that movie literally looks either one of two ways extremely filthy rich or broken you know in one way or another and the, like it's not apparent at all at all in that movie but you can just see a little bit of that aspect of course and they did the loony the the tune magic that was after that and i don't 
You know, speaking of, I wonder how that would have been during World War II if they had if they had tunes involved. But that's that's separate. But uh, I just I love all of the as uh, as Dan said, time sensitive um, stuff they added into the movie. Because I mean, if you look back in the nineteen forties around that time period, that's probably what life would have been pretty much like. You know, struggling between paychecks, drinking, worrying about getting fired. You know, stuff like that. They do have some of the darkness in it too though still because they have the bar looks like it's a like on the outside it looks you know everything looks like it's kind of sunny sunny and shiny and like kind of new but then you go inside the bar like you can clearly see people are struggling there's definitely darkness to it even the main character has a bit of darkness to him it just gets overshadowed by the tunes so it's not as harsh i think is what it is yeah it's 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 almost like a balancing act where the tunes is all magical and cool and really cheery and happy but, like, the actual life outside of there is miserable for everyone. Yeah, yeah I love it. It's like this alternate reality where we live in a world with, where there's actually a cartoon universe living side by side with us and we interact with each other. Okay, I'm going to uh, pivot into a slightly different direction here. Um, can we just take a moment of respect for how much effort it must have taken to write you know, not just the drafts, but create the animation for this movie. We, I, had, I know you skimmed over it in one of the facts, but, like, how much effort came into making this movie? Normally, when it comes to a cult classic, it's one of two ways, you know? It's a golden masterpiece that they put everything they possibly could into, or it's just a one-off that just so happened to happen during that time period where people remember it very well, turning it into a cult classic, right? And I think this is one of those... uh kind of they literally slaved their lives into creating a movie like this and it didn't really do that well for how much effort it did but because that it's a golden a golden example of a of a cult classic and i i you know i have to say um when it comes to uh like the animation because i'm a big sucker for as you guys know animation and for you know the musical undertones of the movie by the way i can't didn't really recognize any music in this movie at all but uh the animation is just so good. It's so good. Um, and how they blend... I mean, even like to green screen standards today, it isn't actually terrible. It's really good for what it is. No, and, and on the other side of animation, like the actor's ability to act in front of cartoon characters that aren't there, or if they're there, it's probably subdued to like a little green screen suit and they have to pretend like this is like another emotional character that they have to make a connection with in the movie oh yeah that's that's really cool they didn't even have green screen in the 1980s though i don't think so they they literally yeah, had so, i don't know what they're actually i don't know i don't know what they're actually looking at but it's probably not much like it's yeah probably like a tennis ball it, it, no, it i think green like, screen was invented in like no actually green screens uh were invented in 1940 were they being used, though, actively in movies? Yeah. They were used for special effects. No shit. But it was originally blue back then, so holy crap, I didn't know that. Yeah, like, I feel like there, we could do a whole other podcast on just, like, the production of this movie, but, like, it's, it's incredible that this movie came out in 1988, and it's still, it, you, don't, you don't blink an eye at the, uh, the special effects. Oh, not at all. Like, yeah. Yeah, like I, the, yeah. some of the special effects I've watched that were 1980s, you know, had the reminiscent feeling of the first Star Wars movie. It was terrible. Like, they were, they, were, they were special effects, right? But they were terrible in today. But, like, this movie, the special effects, I think, are more timeless than anything else because they're not explosions and cool stuff. It's cartoony, and it's fun to look at, and it's just really cool. I um I think the the first Star Wars uh, for the time like their their special effects were actually really good, but there's definitely movies that came out in the 1980s like Star Nazis Must Die that had that couldn't even do regular filming and they were just bad with it. And then you got to remember what what year was Weird Science made in? Uh, wasn't it 1985 or something like that? 1982, yeah. somewhere around the mid 1980s. This is three years after, and personal opinion, I think the special effects between that movie and 
a movie that came three years after, like it's night and day. Oh, it really is. And again, that has to that has to go down to how much work was put into this movie. It wasn't just a, uh, um, you know, a college production. It was like an actual company film that was created between two different super companies, super film companies that created something like this. And it's just really underappreciated. I'm, I'm kind of curious why people walked out of the movie as well. Because it says that the first people, the 17 19 year olds, literally walked out of the movie. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, like, and I guess this may be a difference in time period, but even if I hate a movie, I'm still going to sit in there and watch it and then bash it later. But walking out of the movie? Nah, that's a waste of money. I could never do that. Um, but. I don't know. I mean, Dan, did you have anything you wanted to say specifically about this movie? No, not too much. I mean, I, I guess the only comment to, to John, which John just said, is uh, it, with a test audience. Oh yeah, they probably just pulled random people and said, "Here, we're gonna, we're gonna pay yeah, you for your honest opinion." Like, I feel like this movie. I don't know. I don't know what it like. It was what it was like to be a teenager in the eighties, but it kind of bridged a weird gap between like adults and kids. Yeah, and, like, like I, I said before, I think that's why like me and Adine, our parents were okay showing this movie to us because they just saw like a, a cartoon rabbit. They're like, oh, here you go. Watch this. It'll yeah, they didn't think anything of it. Were you yeah. born in 1988, Dan? Yeah. What's that? Were you born in 1988? 87. Yeah, so you were alive when this movie came out. Barely. I mean, when I watched this movie, I mean, I was like, uh, you know, 12. And during when I was 12, that was, oh, crap. That was like 2008. So... For me, this movie had been out already 20 years. And when yeah, I, I mean, watched like, it, you know, my parents were basically like, oh my god, this isn't suitable for children. Why we, Why is he watching this? And literally shut it off on me. And of course, they shut it off right after the poor little shoe got dipped. Um, so that's just my everlasting trauma for this movie. So I never actually watched the ending until I watched this movie uh, like two weeks ago. Yet they, they sat through the whole Jessica Rabbit, or the Jessica Rabbit Lake show. It is. They didn't notice. I was watching it on my own. They kind of just looked at the screen as this poor little shoe was getting melted, and they're like, what is wrong with this movie? Uh-uh. That, that, it's just funny that that was the first like red flag for the movie. Oh, there was a lot of red flags. Honestly, when they introduced the bar and they started drinking, in the very, very beginning, that should have been a red flag. But nope, they were just like, hmm, well, that's normal. I think it's even funnier, though, because my mom definitely watched this fucking movie before she let me watch it. And I was a kid. I was I had I couldn't have been more than like seven when I watched this movie for the first time. She she should have seen all those red flags well before she let me see this movie. And she still let me watch it like because she had watched it and loved this movie on her own and then introduced it to me. But to be fair, around the same age, she also introduced Clue. So I don't really know <laughs> where we want to put that in there, because that movie's all murder all the time. Another Christopher Lloyd movie, by the way. Yeah. It's hard to go into this movie in detail, because... Um, oh, here's something I just came up with. Um, it's hard to go into this movie in detail like it is other movies. Like when we, when we reviewed Solaris or The Fifth Element... Like, there was a lot of other things that you could go into because it was a very deep movie of some sort. Even Fifth Element is a deep movie, even though it's a comedy, right? Um, this movie is very surface, you know? You watch it because it's funny, it has visuals, there's definitely dark stuff, there's a lot of puns in here, there's a lot of innuendos, but, I mean, when you don't really look beyond that, you know? Dan got traumatized by the movie because he's Dan, but most people watch this movie and enjoy the movie and then kind of just, you know, remember it in their hearts as a really enjoyable movie. But it, it isn't something that evokes massive amounts of questions like, oh, this is a this is a deep movie or, oh, this is Surf Nazis Must Die or something like that. So, you know, I, I, I just don't really have much to say on it other than that it was really fun to watch. And, oh, there was a lot of puns in here. Oh, there's some interesting character development. Or, oh, there was something, you know, that happened at the end, but it wasn't super deep. I mean, it did have some deep comments to it as well. Like, but you just don't realize it because you're not focusing on that. You're glancing over it because they had the commentary on industrialism. 
They definitely had a lot of commentary on, they had a bit of commentary with Toontown. I know it doesn't seem like it, but there is commentary there. You're just not, you're just thinking, yeah, like oh, how they Toons. quarantined all the tunes to a specific area and they weren't allowed outside that area. I mean, that's well, they were allowed literally like, outside of it. They were allowed outside of it. But the thing is, is that the Toontown was a haven for tunes. It did make it seem like tunes weren't 100% accepted outside in the real world. It wasn't straight like, oh, people hate you, but it was like, oh, they weren't considered real because tunes were being murdered left and right in this movie by Judge Doom, and nobody stopped it. But when a human got murdered, there was a fucking issue, right? So there's one. And then the tunes were constantly happy. And don't get me wrong, they're tunes. So in our cartoons and stuff like that, they're always portrayed as that. But if you were to actually make this movie really about reality, like, you know, they wouldn't be uncaring that their own is getting killed left and right, you know? The most uh, depth-worthy character that was a cartoon was actually Jessica Rabbit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, you know what I mean? In reference to in reference to the depth that I was talking about, like, there's definitely some undertones in the movie, but I'm not like, you can review a scene and pick apart pieces and come up with something entirely new that was amazing, you know? Like, everything is very surface. It's kind of like reading a... Uh, it's like reading a mystery novel and enjoying enjoying it and then putting down the book and, you know, maybe picking it up 10 years later or something like that because you know it was a good book. But it isn't something that, you know, you pick up, you read it, and you're like, oh, my God, that was really good. Let me reread that, you know? It's like I've watched this movie like 10 times. It's We're different people, Nadine. Is this true? <laughs> no, for, for me, like, I think that's what's so great about this movie is, like, you can't just watch it on its surface level and enjoy it it's a great movie but then there are little tidbits there's little things that it alludes to there's depth between by the uh about like the actual culture of the time that it's like placed in that it does actually make a lot of commentary about what's going on under under the world Mm -hmm. dan like i watched this movie with satori Uh and i just kind of sat through the entire movie and then afterwards i just kind of like looked at the screen i was like that's that's that was a nice movie and then i literally moved on yeah, like, that's like I, I didn't do anything else i just straight up moved on like i didn't think i didn't talk about the movie i didn't discuss it with satori you know i didn't have this great revelation that made me want to post on facebook like no i literally just looked at it i was like hmm, that's a nice movie okay and then literally just continued doing something else like it was just there you know yeah i think that's that's to its credit, it's like it, it can appeal to kids, it can appeal to adults, it can yeah. appeal to anyone that's just like and somewhat in tune of what's happening in the 80s or even like the, the 40s. Like, it's, I, I think it's a timeless movie, but yeah, and I, I get that. It's just like when I said like surface level, that's quite that's kind of what I meant. I didn't mean like, oh, yeah, like, yes, there's. No matter what movie you pick apart and disassemble, it's going to come up with time period specific stuff. But like this movie in very particular, like if you don't look at that specific time period sensitive stuff like that was traumatizing back then, you know, you kind of just look at it, you enjoy it, you move on. There isn't there isn't like a, some great massive thing that's going to like change your life from watching this movie or or you know, be like, wow, this movie is unique and amazing in its own right. Like, for example, uh, the like that Office movie you guys made me watch, Office Space. Like, that movie is so unique and it's so good, and there is depth to it, you know? But, yeah. like, this movie, it's just kind of like a, I watched it on the surface, I enjoyed it, I remember it specifically for a lot of things, but I don't really consider it more than just that. It's enjoyment. I was gonna say, I'm like, that's there's a lot of movies out there that are like that though, because even Office Space was kind of like that, where you were still following the main story and you can take it at surface value and not put any depth into it at all. But this one, I think it does have a little bit of it. It's just overshadowed with cartoon characters. And even when I was watching it now, because now that we're having to do this as a podcast and I'm not just watching it for the sheer enjoyment of it, I am more critical with the movies. I am like taking it apart more. So when I'm watching it, I'm like looking to see if it has anything else to say at all about anything or have anything that's more than surface value. 
Predator, surface value. There's literally nothing else to that fucking movie, the original one, not any of the ones it's that came just out. just male testosterone versus right? alien that's, cinematic. That's it. But this one definitely has more to it. It's just overshadowed with the craziness of cartoons and mostly Looney Tunes, you know? Like, that's, it's got yep. the chaos yeah. in it from the Looney Tunes, and that kind of just overshadows all the, uh, the rest of the small little things you can pick up on this movie. You said a very good point there. Because it's a podcast, you have to pick it apart. I don't do that with movies that I watch in this podcast. I specifically look at it from an enjoyment value. And whether or not, like, how much did I gain from this movie? Like, is it something that I would personally enjoy to watch again? Or, you know, what, like, the questions we have later. Would I tell my friends about it? No, like, I specifically watch this movie, and if I enjoy it, I rate it higher. If I hate it, it ain't going to get rated high. Surf see, Nazis Must Die, for example. That's because this is the first time you're watching a lot of these movies, you know? Maybe it's the second or third time, but for most of these movies, you are not a cult classic person. You don't watch these movies because you love these movies. <laughs> I've watched not most of the movies that we've already watched a million times. I have totally watched Donnie Tarko and Requiem for a Dream and Predator before. I've even watched My Neighbor Totoro. I watched pretty much everything except for Surf Nazis Must Die before. Yeah, and to be fair, I don't think we're ever going to watch that again either. So it was just kind of like, you know, everyone suffered in that. One and done for that one. But I'm just saying. That was absolutely a one and done. You know. Uh, you know what? I have a great idea that I might tell Satori later. When we get married, I'm going to play that after the wedding. So everyone has to sit through the same pain that I did. And you know what, John? <laughs> Just to torture them. Satisfaction out of that. But what I'm saying is, so because I have seen these movies again, I think I've got more experience than you for sure. And then I think I have a little bit more experience than Dan when it comes to cult movies. And especially when it comes to ones that are more like, horror movies or have like a darker to it because that's kind of my dad loved horror movies and action movies my mom liked the mysteries and things like that so I grew up with ones that were like that um and so for me now I have well now that I'm watching them again and I'm doing it for a podcast I feel like as someone who is more of a cult movie follower like a definite lover of cult movies I should be watching these more critically now and then you know, I'm picking up more stuff than maybe you would because you're watching this for the first time or you're, you haven't seen it since you were a kid kind of deal. Well, yeah, and I also grew up as a uh, as your classic weeb and uh, also played games my entire life. So not only am I watching movies for the first time when it comes to these, uh, these cult classics, a lot of modern movies I watch for the first time too and still... I have, like, I'm so different than you guys. Like, I I understand why you chose me for this podcast, right? And I understand why I'm here, but sometimes I'm like, did they just want to torture me a little bit? See my pained reactions? Like, <laughs> I was like, it makes you feel better when I, when I came up with the concept of this idea. It was like, oh, you and me, Dan, because you don't watch cult movies as much as I do. I totally watch shittier movies than him and cult more cult movies. There's a couple cult movies that I've introduced him into, like John Dies at the End, that he was like not about. He did not like that. Um, <laughs> and then I was like, all right, well, we need someone who doesn't watch any of that shit. And I was like, John, <laughs> that'll work. Thanks, man. <laughs> Appreciate you. I, I say I, I, I safely dabble in cult classics, but it needs a whole other level. Oh, yeah. I love, I love cult classic movies. I love like weird movies. I love all that. I, I even love like the TV shows that came after the cult classics for the ones that I like, like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Originally, it was a cult classic movie. We're gonna be watching it at some point, so of course my bitch ass watched the show. You know, like shit like that. Like I, if they had a Clue TV show, my ass would be on it. I'd be like, like this. The only right cult now. classic I willingly watched when I was younger and really enjoyed was Requiem for a Dream, and I only enjoyed it because it traumatized me specifically for that. I even had trouble watching it again, right? Now, this movie, I saw parts of it. You know, I'd seen parts of other movies from memes online, like The Office Space, but did I ever watch the movie? Hell no. So, you know, I sit down and watch the movie, and then I'm like, aha, there's a meme! You know, I got really excited for it. But, you know, other than that, not really. But I think um, we should probably move on. What do you think, Nadine? 
Yeah, I was actually about to say that because we're getting to about an hour in, but with editing, it'll probably be 20 minutes it's taking out. So I don't mind us hitting an hour. Um, All right. So you, you yeah. ask the golden question, Nadine. All right. So is it or isn't it? Dan, is it or isn't it? Yeah, like this movie has to be a cult classic because honestly, like I feel like it doesn't get as much credit as it should today. But it is so influential on stuff you see on a daily basis, too. Um, I think it's a purebred cult classic. Nadine. I mean, obviously, I think it's a cult classic. I picked the fucking movie, and it's a nominless pick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a... I'm going to agree with you on that, Nadine. I'm like, this is, this is such a cult classic that even when you watch it, you're like, huh, this is a classic movie, you know? And you don't even know... It doesn't even matter when the movie came out. You could watch this... You can watch it like two years after it came out. I'm like, hmm, this could be a classic movie, you know? It just it has that vibe to it, that stinky, smelly vibe of a movie that you know is a classic. So yeah, of course. Alrighty, let us rate the movie. I want your opinion, Dan. What do you think of the movie? How would you rate it? And tell me why that my rating is lower than yours. Oh, I'm gonna straight up give this movie a nine. Um, this is very so close to a perfect movie that I don't really have a good reason not to give it a 10. I loved it. I think I came in uh, to this podcast giving it an 8, but as I would talk to get through with you guys, this is movies a 9. It's excellent. It hits so many notes in the right way. Whether you want to watch it just for the surface level, whether we actually want to dive deep and actually like see the historical context of this movie, it's great. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nadine, tell me what you think. Uh, so for me, it's an eight. Um, there's, I've, there's movies out there that are tens for me, and there's movies out there that are definitely nines for me. I know I haven't given a ten yet in this podcast, even though I'm a cult movie lover. Well, you're also, and, you've, you've seen way too many movies. You know what your tens are already. Yeah, exactly. And then I don't think I've given that many nines, but for me, this movie is a pretty goddamn good movie. It's not perfect there's some things in it that like you know we had didn't go over what we didn't really like about this movie that i, I would have liked more um you know i would have liked to see the weasels more the tomb patrol but that's just because i love them as a care as characters kind of deal that's more me and then it, the editing a little bit with some of the the cartoons i could see on the edges for the time period though it was fantastic um and I think the comedy in it was pretty good. I think the mystery in it was really good. I like the fact that they made it like a 1940s, 1950s style, you know, noir-like type mystery movie. I, I really do enjoy that. And I do enjoy that they brought all those cartoon characters into it for me. I think they could have had a little bit more depth with the cartoon characters than they had. And I think they might have missed that a little bit, um, especially with how... Judge Doom was just killing them off and nobody was doing anything about it. Kind of deal. Gotcha. All right. Well, I ignore the first rating, but when I originally watched this movie, I was going to give it a six when I concluded, right? And I knew that to me it was a six. However, um, and this is a rather large jump, I've come to the conclusion, Nadine, that based on my previous scale, right? Did I pull anything from this movie? Did I enjoy this movie? Did I like this movie? I'm going to be outright with you and say this is the one and only movie that we have watched the entire time that I've enjoyed so much. I did, I did absolutely adore Fifth Element, right? But there was a lot of missed things in there that you know I'd have to rewatch it for. For this movie, I remember specific details about this movie. I could rewatch it a hundred fucking times and still have the same feeling about it. It is a good, solid movie. And on top of that, it's actually one of my favorite movies. Just because I rewatched it. This is a you 10 for me. You are very welcome. This is another 10 for me. And uh, in all honesty, I think it deserves that rating. I think Dan skipped out a little bit and should have rated it higher. And Nadine, I think you're just being nitpicky. Because this movie was pure, utter enjoyment, and I could watch this again. When I have kids, if I have kids, they're going to watch it. Um, if I'm bored one day and I don't know what to do, I'm going to watch it again. Yeah, screw it. I like this movie. So, 10. 
All right. I guess I'm, I'm nitpicky now. Um, <laughs> I would say since I haven't given anything a 10, that's probably accurate because I feel like I'm- You I'm, are, you're nitpicky. I, don't I think, think I, I like- I don't think I've given a 10 on either, have I? You have, you have. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. I, I vote on extremes. If I don't like the movie, you bet your ass that movie's getting rated low as hell. If I love the movie, it is getting rated high. And if I don't even know how I feel about the movie, it's a solid five. Like, it's it's just extremes. But Nadine's like, well, if you think about it like this and this, that means it'll correspond to this ranking. It's like she does arithmetic in her head. And Dan's just like, would I drink with this movie? Yeah, all right, I'd rank it up. Why do you say that? <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Can we say we into would you recommend this movie? Yes. Um, recommend it. Yes. Yeah, so I, I recommend doing the drinking game with this movie because that's what I did to watch this movie. And it made perfect sense. If obviously if you're over 21. All right. Tell me what you, now you went, you already said it. What's the drinking game? So I have the, to try this sometime. Drinking is there, there's a list and I'll, I'll list it in the episode notes, but it's like every time there's a putt, every time Roger or Valiant drink, every time you see a cartoon character you recognize, every time you, uh, Oh my god, I'd be fucking drunk. I oh, by the nearly all of them. I drink like two beers within the first twenty minutes. I think I finished with like. Oh, so okay, so we're not doing shots here. We're just, just taking just, a just, sip. I was okay because I would be dead by the uh, end of this movie. Shots, you're gonna die. But yeah, like <laughs> yes, th- this movie, I would recommend. Um, if you uh, if if you like drinking, having a little uh, alcoholic fun, or I would recommend doing the drinking game. Yes. Do this party game. Yes. It's it's a good time. Watch this movie. And I, Nadine, I have to follow up on that because he made perfect sense with it. I just have to get it out. Um, Dan, I absolutely fucking agree with you. Yes, of course. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I would just casually recommend this to people, you know, because that goes in line with what I do. I don't really recommend movies. However, if I'm going to drink, you bet your ass you're coming over and watching this movie with me. Hell yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I did not participate in the drinking game because I had to write the synopsis right after. But <laughs> Wink. I would, I would say I, I mean, I I would have if like if I didn't if I didn't have to write the synopsis afterwards and watch this movie at least one to two more times, I would have totally done it. But like, if I'm I'm basically doing the the extra work so you guys can have the good old fun. Um, but I would still recommend this movie. I mean, I grew up with this movie. I watched this movie with my mom. I love this movie. She introduced it to me. Um, this is like one of several cult classics she introduced me to that like from childhood, I still carry to this day and it holds like an awesome place in my heart, (laughs) in my memory. So anytime like anyone would want to watch a movie that's like a little bit silly, but still kind of has a mystery to it. I, I would recommend it like no problem at all. I mean, yeah, if someone asked you what movie to watch, I'd probably be like, hell yeah, watch this one. But I don't think I'd go out of my way like I'm like a Jehovah's Witness and knock on people's door and give them a flyer that says, please watch this movie. Oh, there's some movies that I would totally do. Like, I I forced Dan to watch some movies with me that were, like, cult classics. I was like, yeah, but he doesn't watch. really have a choice. Because you'll, <laughs> no. like, you'll, like, attack him or something and beat him with a stick, you I know? So that's how your rib has been fractured. It wasn't by the dog. You said no to this movie. I love this dog. It was a dog. No, it was a dog during a lightning storm. I was going down the steps. He was by my side, and he saw the lightning, and he took my legs off for me and hurt me. Maybe if you weren't five foot one, you'd have you'd have more control. But well, if I was if I was six foot one, I'd probably have a. Two or three or four more records. So maybe if you were strong like me, Dan, you would. have... I'm sorry, I'm not strong like Cool. Oh, thank <laughs> you. You're not strong like me. <laughs> All right, Nadine, we, we we had a little bit of fun on this one. Uh, go ahead and end this out. I, I'm done. I have nothing left. I've been getting milked from this movie. So if you guys have any movie recommendations or want to talk about movies with us, you can find us on Facebook through our private group, Snazzy Podcast. It's S-N-A-S-Y podcast at Snazzy Podcast on Instagram. Or you can email us at she's not a slut yet at gmail.com. Uh, I know we don't have a lot of followers right now, 
but I, I, even with the small amount that we have, I would actually really like to hear back from you guys about the movies that you love. Because eventually I would like to put a movie that you guys pick that you love as a cult classic in. If you guys like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help us get out there and have more people find us. So there's more interaction within the group. Um, and as a heads up, we will be reviewing John's pick, uh, American Psycho, released in 2000 next. So make sure to tune in again. That episode will be released on October 7th. And October is actually going to be our horror month. So we're only going to be doing horror movies, much to John's disappointment. No! <laughs> can, I, can I back out, Nadine? I can't do it anymore. No. It's <laughs> too <in>. late. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Anyways, guys, um, it was good having you listen to me. And Nadine and Dan, of course, they're, they're always there. But bye! Have a good one. Bye! Bye! See ya.